Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Did you suffer from spring fever? Winter was fairly quiet in Connecticut compared to past seasons, but there's still nothing like that first mild day to motivate us to get outside. For some, that means getting their hands in the dirt and preparing garden beds for a hopeful bounty of flowers or vegetables in the months ahead. Do you think of yourself as a farmer or a casual gardener? At our last coffee break in Middletown, we met a woman who says she practices modern homesteading. Of course, we were intrigued, so we got working on today's show. What does it mean to be a modern homesteader? Are you interested in learning how to grow your own food or raise some livestock so you aren't as dependent on the local grocery store? You can join our conversation today, 860-275-7266. As always, find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. Uh, joining me now in studio is Farah Masani. She's a farmer, forager, and homesteader based in Wilton, Connecticut. That's in Fairfield County. Uh, Farah, welcome to our studio. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm super excited to share. So what we were talking about what it means to be a homesteader. And this is a lifestyle that you have chosen and been living uh, for uh, several years. So when you think about what led you to the practicing this, uh, you know, what, what were some of the factors? I was super frustrated with the quality of food that was available for purchase in the markets and the grocery store. Um, and I decided, what the heck? Let me just grow my own food. I love being outside. I enjoy um, the, f- the fact that you put a seed in the ground and then you have food to eat. Um, and so I decided I'm just going to do it. It's a way of life. Let's enjoy it. Um, it surrounds me um, with like-minded people um, in a healthy lifestyle where I get to be outside and work my muscles. Um, and I get to teach and share and um, educate people on how they can do it themselves. Um, so, how, how did you learn? I learned by watching. So, I grew up in Bombay and I spent the weekends in the countryside with um, families that homesteaded. They had chickens and goats and had rice fields and grew wheat and fruits and vegetables. And I found myself being super happy and excited to be around that way of life and that lifestyle. And so I started watching and learning. And my nanny and my parents hated the fact that I went out um, and got dirty um, in the fields because that's not what girls from our families do. Um, And I learned by watching. And it came very quickly to me. And I educated myself. I learned from other farmers and uh, just started doing it. And that's the one thing that I like to tell people all the time. Just do it. When we think of the term homesteader, so essentially you're a farmer, but it's more than that. So you're learning to be self-sufficient, and it's not about technically maybe selling what you're producing, but sharing with the community? It is. So I do grow for myself. I grow for my winter stores. I preserve. I barter. Because, I, for example, I don't have a cow. I don't have milk. So I will take my produce and my fruits and I will share and barter and get what I can't get or grow on my own land. 
Um, I also have a farm stand where I let my produce and honey and eggs out where people can come and take um, and put in a tin box some money if they want to or put something else that they've made at home that we can have this amazing system of, uh, of give and take. The goal was to be able to barter or grow everything except for toilet paper. So that's what me and my housemates, my fellow farmers, decided to do. Let's see if we can live by growing and bartering every single thing except for toilet paper. And we tried so hard. We made our soap. Um, we, we tried so hard. We so, hunted Connecticut far and near for people who were willing to give us what we didn't have. So how did that go? You said you tried so hard. Were you able to do it? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> I wasn't able to find grains. Like, if you think about it, not a lot of growers grow grains. And where am I going to go get that? It's hard. But if you look and you keep looking, you'll, you know, eventually find it. Mm. And so uh, we had a lot of fun doing it. It's a great community. Mm. Um, we really enjoyed life. We cooked together. We ate together. Um, people from our town, our lovely town of Wilton, would wander by and they would wonder what we're doing. They're mm. like, what are you doing and how can we participate? They would send their kids to hang out with us and learn. Um, that was fun. So I understand that you consider yourself a landless farmer. What does that mean? I have no land. At this moment, I've lost my land. So I'm using other people's land. Um, I'm working with Jonathan, the farmer at Ambler Farm, which is Wilton's town farm, um, and helping him um, grow food for the community, for the farmer's market, for the farm stand. Um, and I love it. Um, I also use people who have access land, who don't want it to be a manicured lawn. And if they want it to be um, an edible garden, they'll reach out to me and they'll say, hey, Farah, can you turn this into a growing field? And I'll say, absolutely, let's do it. Um, and I'll turn it into a garden that's really beautiful um, and grow food for them and for myself and for the community to share. Uh, you spoke uh, positively about your town of Wilton, where you've lived uh, for several years now. Um, you're in a part of Connecticut that is wealthy. Uh, you mentioned uh, people like to have the, the well-manicured lawn, um, but maybe necessarily don't have the time or interest in actually using the land to grow food. And so I'm curious if you could talk about that in terms of, is it was it difficult to find people at first who said, you know, that they'll let you onto their property because people really like to have, you know, the private property. Property, many acres um, to grow food. What do they think of that, uh, you know, that partnership? So it's a mix. There's some people who absolutely need to have their manicured lawns. And then there's some people that are willing to explore, that are willing to um, give up some of their beautiful lawn to grow. Um, and I think through education, through conversation, to, through talking about what the possibilities are, People are super curious and open and they're wanting to do it. With the work Connecticut has done with the pollinate or pathways and growing flowers and growing edibles, um, people are now learning and getting educated and they really want it. So over the years, I'm surprised that the number of people reaching out to me have increased significantly um, to give up their land to turn mm. into food. 
You're hearing Farah Masani. She's a farmer forager and homesteader based in Wilton, Connecticut. As we focus in on the people who are turning to farming to be more self-sufficient, um, are you one of them or you're thinking about ways to grow a produce, maybe raise uh, goats or chickens, and you don't know where to begin? You can join our conversation today, 860-275-7266. Uh, Fairfield County, obviously a place with very, uh, uh, you know, very uh, expensive land. If you didn't find uh, these people willing to let you come on to their property, you wouldn't be able to farm down in Wilton. Yeah, yeah. Um, for many years, I rented um, a very old house um, right in Wilton Town Center, and um, it had it came with land and acreage, and we just took this residential property and converted it into growing land. We had chickens, we had ducks, we had turkeys. Um, this property was owned by um, a real estate person um, who really didn't care about farming, but allowed us to do this. Um, unfortunately, we had to give up that property. It was over 100 years old and it was mold infested. So I had to give up this land and became a landless farmer. And then I ended up starting a farm for um, Barcelona Wine Bar, the restaurants in Connecticut, um, as a teaching um, as a teaching place, as a training place to get chefs come close to um, their food, to learn how to grow food, and to use their food and their menus. We're going to take some calls. Again, you can call in at 860-275-7266. Uh, before I do that, Kate on Twitter writes, I grow fruits and vegetables, raise chickens for eggs, and also have inoculated logs to grow mushrooms. It's partly because our food system is broken, she says, and also out of wanting to be more in tune with our planet. Plus, I think lawns for ornament's sake are dumb. Is that, uh, is that sentiment uh, growing? That you know, What's the point of having this uh, manicured green lawn uh, when you could be growing things and, and uh, producing things to eat? Absolutely. That resonates with me very well. And more and more people are beginning to think like that. And you know, don't get me started on the chemicals that go into our lawns. That's a whole nother show. Um, but it's a reality that it's ruining our environment. Uh, Jesse's calling from Old Lyme. Jesse, go ahead. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, I'm a fisherman. Well, I'm also a, a commercial fisherman in Alaska for wild-caught salmon. But here in Connecticut, um, it's, it's, we have such an opportunity to eat sustainably through our water systems. Now, granted, the stripers and the bluefish, as you know, pregnant women and, and children, you have to kind of watch that. But there's so many species where you don't the fluke, sea bass, tatog, uh, blackfish, which, you know, is, is, was hugely popular in the 17 and 1800s. And um, these are many more species, porgy, and then even the freshwater system, we have a stock trout, uh, you know, going on where you can buy your license and, and go enjoy fishing with your kids. And so not only is it eating sustainably, helping a uh, Connecticut Fish and Wildlife or in the ocean, but, uh, it, you know, it's a great way to fight mega farming and, and to uh, get your protein yourself, and you can feel good about doing that as well. Well, thank you, Jesse, uh, for your call. Uh, Farah is also a buyer again for the Barcelona uh, Restaurant Group, or had been for some time. Uh, when we think about a farm, or, I'm sorry, restaurants really bringing that farm-to-table experience, are they also thinking about um, uh, the fish that we have uh, in, in New England and bringing that to the table versus ones that are overfished uh, and are problematic? Absolutely. One of the things that we worked very hard um, to do at Barcelona was to bring 
not only farm fresh produce, but also fresh fish from the waters that surround us. Um, in, in the South, when we have um, fishermen that go out and trawl and bring that produce, um, that, that seafood, sorry, back to our restaurants, it is absolutely delightful for our chef to be able to showcase that. In Georgia, we had Georgia shrimp. Um, in the Northeast, in Boston, we had um, day boat fish. Um, it is exciting, and it is fun to be able to share and promote that um, so our chefs can learn and then ultimately share that with um, our guests that come to the restaurants. Today here on Where We Live, we're talking about modern homesteading. Again, uh, this movement to become more self-sufficient, uh, to use land for growing uh, fruits and vegetables, uh, plants that benefit our pollinators. If you're thinking about this or if this is something you've embraced, join us, 860-275-7266. Uh, Jaminy is calling from Wallingford. Go ahead. Jaminy, are you there? Hello. Go ahead with your question or comment. Yeah, I mean, uh, I have a question to the to the to your guests. Uh, I have a very small patch actually in the, my backyard, and uh, I have tried to uh, produce uh, things actually over there. But there are some trees, and I'm not some trees which uh, does not allow full time sun. So there is sun over there, but not all the time. And I'm not willing to cut off this trees. Mm. Can your guest help us? And it's a small patch. I'm not saying it's a big acre, ten acres. It's mm. less than half an acre. So you're looking to grow uh, vegetables or other plants, right. but you're in a very shaded area? Not very shaded. I would say there are some trees that block uh, sunlight for uh, uh, about three, four hours in a day. I would highly recommend um, growing leafy greens. Kales, collards, chard, lettuce, arugula, they love cool, shaded weather. Try to stay away from tomatoes, eggplants, cucumbers that need a lot of sun. Um, you'll be amazed at the harvest and the bounty you can get from leafy greens, not to mention the nutrition. Spinach is another great one. Um, if you want to get exotic and try something fun, my favorite is amaranth. Try eating amar amaranth leaves. They're very nutritious, they're colorful, they're pretty, and they love cool, shaded weather. Those are some good tips from Farah Masani, again, a farmer, forager, and homesteader based in Wilton, Connecticut. You're listening to Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathangel. Coming up, we're going to talk to another Connecticut resident who has tried urban homesteading, and we're going to continue to take your questions, too, 860-275-7266, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're learning about a practice that's getting more attention in recent years, modern homesteading, when people choose to become more involved in growing and raising their own food. Does it sound like you? How did you begin? You can join us, 860-275-7266, or find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. In studio with me is Farah Masani, a farmer, forager, and homesteader based in Wilton, Connecticut. And joining me now in studio is Sven Peel, owner of Connecticut Edible Ecosystems. It's a sustainable landscape design company. Sven, welcome back to the show. Oh, thank you very much. So I understand you were uh, technically a homesteader uh, in Connecticut was it a few years ago. What led you to this practice? The economic crash of 2008. 
So uh, what it, when that happened, did you um, lose employment and you were trying to find ways to uh, grow your own food so that you were able to live? Um, yes. Uh, in short, um, I, I was laid off and this was at the beginning of the crash. So there were just more and more and more people being laid off and less and less jobs available. And I took the after some thought, took the opportunity um, or took advantage of the opportunity to learn how to take better care of myself. Mm. So where did you begin? We heard Farah say earlier she learned by watching. Uh, what about you? Um, I grew up with a garden in Guilford. Um, as a child, I had a community garden plot in New Haven, a little four by eight raised bed for one season. And then um, the crash occurred and uh, I made a lot of mistakes from there. Mm. Like what? Oh, planting. Like the gentleman uh, that called with the shady yard, um, I planned my garden in an area that was full shade and everything got all leggy and didn't want to do what it was. I would hope it would do and um, eventually moved that garden. Um, and a lot of it had to do with planning. Actual, uh, The mistakes I made were because I didn't do my research and I didn't plan well, I assumed. So what are some resources for uh, Connecticut residents? If they don't really know where to begin, uh, there are organizations that are there to help that helped you. Um, yes, I, uh, I had gone to Connecticut NOFA workshops. Um, and what and, does that stand for again? Uh, the Northeast Organic Farming Association. Um, I had gone to their workshops. I had gone to the library and picked, got books on gardening um, and basically tried it myself. I mean, I put seeds in the ground on day one, basically, and and the, through these entities and through the library and so on, um, was able to learn what to do. Uh, some people listening now may not have a lot of space, especially if you live in one of Connecticut's cities. You did urban homesteading in New Britain, I believe. So yes. what did that look like? How much space did you have, and, and how did you choose what to grow? Well, in season one, it was probably a, like a 16-by-4-foot bed. Um, Season two, I expanded to a neighbor's property across the street where they had gardened. Uh, season three, I expanded to another neighbor's property um, where they had a garden. And um, eventually it was covered 650 square feet. And were you able to use everything that you grew? Because I know that's something, uh, personally, when I love uh, seeing plants grow and getting a, a good uh, bounty in uh, August and September, but then the question of you don't want to waste it. And so how did you, uh, how did you avoid that? I learned how to can and preserve. Mm. And that's interesting because that's something, that's a skill depending on where uh, you grew up and uh, what generation you're from. Uh, canning may be something that you learn from your family. Uh, the woman that uh, pitched the show to us actually said, you know, she had family in Indiana and that's where she learned how to can. And it's become, I guess, more trendy now to learn how to preserve. And so what are some tips for people who think about, well, how do I, how do, I do it? Uh, I would say, if, especially on the canning side and outside of the freezing side, don't make it up. Follow the ball blue book. Um, there's reasons why you're supposed to have as much acidity in the product as, um, and that is so you 
don't die from botulism. <laughs> yeah, that would be a good thing. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you were led to homesteading uh, for practical reasons. But when we hear the term homesteading, it can uh, call up an image of a, a libertarian or a gun-toting vision of someone who wants to be self-sufficient. I don't want to rely on the government. I don't trust the government. Uh, so how did you reconcile? Uh, I mean, when people hear homesteading, is it confusion about what it means exactly in today's uh, uh, generation? Well, I would... First off, to answer that, I would like to honor the original homesteaders of this country, uh, the Native Americans. Um, and from there, uh, I would say that my, an out, an, an, a byproduct of my process was to build community. Uh, that mm-hmm. was like was mentioned earlier. And so um, I had next door neighbor, a little very young girl who was in my garden all the time who wants to eat healthy food. She doesn't eat fast food today. Um, I gave food to neighbors in need. Um, and I think it's really a, a community building situation. I have run into plenty of people who think that I was sitting on my front porch in a rocking chair and with, you know, smoking a corn cob pipe and <laughs> holding a sawed off shotgun. But that was the, that's the furthest from the, my, my thought process. You mentioned the Native Americans, that even the term homesteading comes from a policy, a U.S. government policy to uh, take land away from Native Americans so that uh, they could go to white settlers. And so we should uh, remember the context of, of that term. I wanted to take some calls now. My guest, uh, Sven Peel, owner of Connecticut Edible Ecosystems, a sustainable landscape design company. And Farah Masani's here, farmer, forager, and homesteader based in Wilton, Connecticut. You can join us too, 860-275-7266. Uh, first up, Charles. Charlie in Bridgeport. Charlie, go ahead. Hi, um, Farah. I have a question. I um, want to build some uh, vegetable boxes, and it's on an area that's typically um, infested with a lot of weeds. And what is your recommendation? We're near a pond, and we want to do something that's safe. But is it laying down a tarp underneath? And you know, if you can give me help on that, that would be terrific. I. I love to use newspaper or cardboard boxes, um, things that you can get in, quite honestly, your recycled dump. Don't go out and buy anything. Lay some newspaper, lay some cardboard down, put your soil and your compost right on top of that. If you've already built your box, um, do it that way. If you haven't, then build your box around that newspaper and cardboard. I like using rough cut lumber as opposed to processed lumber. Um, there's lumber yards across Connecticut that you can go to to get that. I was thinking, uh, I was w- I'm taking a walk uh, in Hartford near where our studios are, and somebody had freshly uh, put down mulch, and it's that uh, mulch that is uh, dyed that you see at the big box stores. And that's not necessary, is it? I mean, it's more of an aesthetic thing, Farah? It is. It absolutely is. It is not necessary. Um, you can use leaves. We have plenty of trees that fall leaves in the fall time, and you could use that um, to to cover your um, to cover your areas. Sven, anything you want to add uh, to Charlie's question about dealing with weeds? Um, I would say weeds are indicators of your soil conditions. Um, uh, we tend to see dandelions in soils that are low on ca- in calcium, I believe. Um, if we look at a lot of our fallow farm fields, we'll see mugwort, which uh, in is allelopathic and can cause some problems, but um, I would say you you can also use your 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 weeds per se. Um, what well, some of them can be eaten um, to understand more about the aspects of your site. 
You mentioned dandelions. A lot of uh, people don't like them because they think of them as weeds, but they are edible, and they're the first flowers, really, for our pollinators. Uh, and so it's good for the bees. Uh, don't pull the dandelions. Respect the dandelion, <laughs> please. And they're also really healthy. They're a, a, a what do you call that, a, a dynamic accumulator with their deep taproot, and they mine a lot of nutrients. And that's why one of the reasons why they're such a healthy plant is because they're their properties. Uh, join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Matt's calling from New Haven. Matt, what's it, What's your question? Hey, how you doing this morning? Doing well. Go ahead, Matt. Um, well, I'm a chef in New Haven. I was very, very intrigued by hearing about the work that was done with the Barcelona Wine Group and just the general overall idea of landless farming, I think, is just an incredible idea. Um and uh, having said that, though, I know from being in this industry that the Barcelona Wine Group is just that, a restaurant group. It's not really a mom-and-pop kind of place anymore. So for uh, local restaurants in New Haven, all throughout Connecticut, how would this type of service be obtainable for someone like that, like a regular restaurateur or an executive chef for a small mom-and-pop restaurant that's just looking to uh, get more information and uh, really figure out different types of fruits, vegetables, and herbs that can be grown in Connecticut. And, um, you know, just really what's what's the easiest way for a regular restaurant to really get into this? Uh, That's a great that question. Doing? Thank you so much for calling in. I would recommend going to the farmer's market. Make friends with your farmers. New Haven has an excellent, excellent farmer's market. Go there. Talk to your farmers. Say, hey, what's up? What are you growing? What are you harvesting? What can I buy? How can I put this on the menu? You're the chef. Take the medium. Get creative with it and serve it to your guests. Support your farmer. Better yet, take your staff to a farm. Show them what's going on on the farm. Teach them where food comes from. And that's the easiest way to get educated. Uh, Sven, uh, we also live in the, the social media YouTube age. So when people think, well, I need to learn, let me just uh, call up a video. I'll put in the term uh, homesteading. And then all kinds of stuff comes up. How do you know uh, which sources to really trust in terms of how to do it the right way? I would say that that's a, that's a big, huge question. And uh, you just opened a giant can of worms. Um, there is a lot of unfortunately, garbage on YouTube. Um, most of the time, it's... Well, I'll keep my opinion to myself. Um, I would say your the, your best bet in, in if you're going to go that route is to find the patterns in the videos of what works for people over the, the narrative. So if one person's talking about how they keep their chickens and they're using a specific method, let's just... I'll plug something. Cer, uh, certified Humane Animal Standards. Um... And that's how they're designing their setup. And then you see another and you see another and they refer to this. Then that's probably a decent way to go. Um, but, you know, somebody packing 20 chickens into 10 square feet or something of that nature, you're basically creating a mini CAFO in your backyard, which is a contained <laughs> animal farming operation. You won't have happy animals. You'll have sick animals. They'll be pecking at each other and so on and so forth. So I would say the best way to go about it is if you're going to look on YouTube, find the patterns in the videos and see what is working and why it's working for that specific person in that specific site. And then see if that's relative to you. Uh, Joan's calling from West Granby. Joan, go ahead. Hi. Um, 
I am. Hi, Sven. Hello. <laughs> um, um, I have a school in West Granby called the Institute of Sustainable Nutrition, and we teach a lot of these practices. We um, we it's centered around the science of nutrition, but then we teach sustainable foraging, sustainable regenerative gardening, um, culinary skills, and um, basically just living a lifestyle that is um, just, I guess, a little healthier, a little cleaner as far as um, chemicals. And we teach people to use the weeds and eat the weeds and um, that sort of thing. Kitchen medicine is a big piece where we teach people how to harvest the food and herbs to make what we call kitchen medicine and... um, so anyway, we're there. <laughs> uh, Joan, I'm just curious, uh, is this a, a school that's just for adults? Or are you also uh, teaching uh, young people? Well, it's it's basically right now for adults. We do have a staff person who is developing curriculum for children and, and families. We feel that if, if you're going to teach kids, you really need to involve the parents so that the kids are empowered to take that information and really use it. Um, well, yeah. th- thank and you. We have- thank you for letting us know about your school in, in West Granby. I did want to turn back to the guests uh, with my question about, you know, we hear so much about the obesity epidemic and the importance of, of getting children to eat uh, healthy food. But part of that, uh, uh, I guess, uh, mindset is uh, teaching them where the food comes from, getting them involved in growing the food. Uh, I'm just curious, what, what are the initiatives out there to, to encourage young people in this way, Farah? Um, just to give you an example, in the town of Wilton, each school, elementary, middle, and high school, has their own garden, their own greenhouse. They grow their own food and um, participate in cooking classes on site. Our middle school has a chef um, on site and a farmer. So that's one way to do it. Another way to do it is for parents to actually use the town farms that we have in Connecticut um, to get their children into summer camps. Um, and educate themselves as well as their children to participate. And farming is a great way to be physically fit. Um, And so what better way than to get your exercise and learn to grow food to combat obesity? Sven, uh, what can we do to encourage more young people? What are some of the initiatives that that you're working on or you know about? Um, Well, when when I was in New Britain uh, homesteading, I had a little neighbor who was one and a half, two years old, and I gave her, her, uh, gave her a tomato plant and a strawberry plant, and she learned how to water that. Little kids want to kind of do what their uh, neighbors and parents and so on are doing. And by the time she was four, I couldn't keep her out of my garden, even if I had wanted to try. And um, she, she basically grew up on fresh vegetables and fruits and so on. And when she moved at five, um, wanted her own garden. And so she basically went into school as a within quotations, master gardener, uh, in comparison to children who did not have that experience. So I'm in full agreement with um, engaging your kids uh, or engaging children at at a very early age. But I'm also seeing, and I want to point this out, the young people today talking about climate change. And um, I know of uh, young people who are looking at horticulture, landscape design, and food production. They're seeing these as one, not as separate siloed practices. And in my opinion, they get it. They understand. I mean, for some reason, they've all been separated, but they're all basically working with nature. Mm-hmm. 
And um, I think, you know, they're, they're on the right track. Uh, we hear often about food deserts in our cities and the importance of connecting all youth uh, to quality food. Um, even if a, a neighborhood doesn't have a lot of green space, there are ways uh, to encourage and, and to grow certain things. I mean, where can, you know, if, we're, if, if uh, uh, someone's listening and they live in Hartford or New Haven and they're looking to, you know, try to grow something, you know, what are some uh, ways that they can do that, some well, techniques? I want to give serious pushback to this food desert idea because a city is, I mean, off, it, it, a city oftentimes is there's a lot of concrete, but there's also a lot of land. And what we're not doing generally is putting food producing systems into these community spaces and teaching from them. Um, and that's something that I'm, I've been working on for the past couple of years now and just like with the homesteading, looking outside the box out of my own um, thought process to see what other municipalities, entities, nonprofits, individuals are doing to implement these food systems in on public property, in the commons as mm. they once were. Mm. Katie's calling from Stanford. Katie, what's your question? Oh, hi. I just wanted to say, first of all, thank you for putting this on the air. Um, I live in Stanford. I have a very large garden and it's been such a source of joy and um, uh, family sharing. Um, I grow a lot of vegetables that I end up sharing also with my neighbors. And um, I, my one question is I have raised beds and I have trouble getting my root vegetables to go down <laughs> past the where the raised beds are. It's, uh, it's North Stanford, so uh, the soil is a little clay, a little rocky. Um, and I put in sand, but I'm just curious if there's any other suggestions for growing. I'd like to grow more beets and longer mm -hmm. carrots and all these wonderful different colored carrots that are coming on back uh, good, into our world now. Good question, Katie. Uh, Farah? Are you direct seeding or are you transplanting? Oh, I'm sorry. She's on hold now. So uh, just. Oh, I'm sorry. sorry. <laughs> um, I, I recommend starting seeds inside for root vegetables sometimes when people have a hard time having them grow down in their soil. Starting them inside sometimes gives the roots uh, a jump start, and then when they're transplanted, helps them go deep down inside. So start that way. Swen, I'm sure you have another technique. Um, so oftentimes on farms or in small garden operations, one will own a, a tool called a broad fork, and that is to loosen up the soil. It looks like a giant kitchen fork with two handles. Um, I would say if you don't want to drop $200, $250 on a tool like that, um, use your standard garden fork and loosen the soil. Don't turn the soil, but loosen the soil. And you'll basically want to do this every season. You allow better water uh, penetration um, as well as aeration slightly you know, to the soil. And I think root, the root crops will have uh, a better chance in loosened soil. Our technical producer, Kion Wolf, uh, mentioned straw bale gardening. Is that something that people can try to grow more root vegetables? And what is that exactly? Straw bale gardening is, it's, I think it's a fad. Um, and the problem is, is straw is primarily carbon. And you'll see, and we're going to make some people uncomfortable at the moment. So, or, or not. So um, I've seen at like festivals in Europe where they'll take a, never mind, I won't go there. Um, so straw bales are primarily carbon and you're, you're, it, it has no nutrients really. Um, 
So you'll end up having to do a lot more to add nitrogen to that to, you know, and then is it organic nitrogen? Is it uh, synthetic nitrogen? Um, the other minerals and so on that a plant needs. Um, I do think it has a place and a purpose and so on. Um, it just would take a bit more thinking about how the how the process works before one should just jump in and try it. Uh, so lots of different techniques out there. Uh, Maureen calling from East Hampton. Go ahead, Maureen. Oh, hi. Uh, yeah, I would just like to talk about the benefit of uh, our insect-eating bats. Um, I'm a biologist. I've been working with bats for more than 25 years. They're wonderful creatures, and they consume tons of night-flying insects, uh, including those that destroy crops. Um, they save billions of dollars for farmers every year. Um, from you name it, they, they there would not be a lot of vegetables on our table uh, today without the uh, efforts and the um, uh, of uh, insect eating bats. I agree with you. A one hundred percent bats are amazing, and if a family can get together and build a bat box and put it up in a tree. Um, that's a great project to work with your kids on and bring bats to your neighborhood. Uh, we're almost out of time, uh, but just some final thoughts, uh, Farah and Sven, for our listeners who, are, again, are looking uh, to uh, to grow uh, more food or even, uh, you know, we like to think of like everyone wants to have chickens or maybe I want to have a goat or a duck. Uh, what, you know, what is really realistic uh, for people um, and, and what makes sense, uh, depending on where you live? I know there's different um, zoning requirements, uh, Farah. I think it's super important for you to look at what you eat, see what you like to eat, and maybe try to grow it. Um, I'm happy to help anyone that wants to grow. I'm happy to come out there and help you do it, um, teach you to teach your kids. But look at what you eat, and that will be your indicator of what you should do. And Sven? Um, I'm very much a planner, so I'm going to propose uh, developing your goals, what it is that you want to do, and and then in that you want to produce food for yourself. Um, What is that food? Is it animal? Is it vegetable? Is it both? And especially on the animal side, realize that you're caring for something, that you are a steward of something. You will, you know, slaughter it, eat it later on, but you want that to be as happy and healthy an animal. Um, And you are responsible for its safety as well. I mean, if critters come in and are killing your chickens and so on, that's on you. It's not on the natural system that's out there. We were speaking of uh, bats and so on. Um, That's, so that's where I'm really pushing for the planning side. And real quick, um, there's a book called At Home with Holistic Management. That's a, a a tool for managing the whole, your whole lifestyle, your whole site, your life, uh, your family. Um, and then another book, uh, Gaia's Garden, A Guide to Home-Scale Permaculture. And so I would say in looking at holistic management for developing goals and how to meet them, including understanding your resources and so on, um, and Gaia's Garden, which is very much a comprehensive understanding of natural systems in relation to food production and your landscape and yourself, 
Um, those would be two great guides to go with. Well, thank you for those resources for our listeners. Again, Sven Peel, owner of Connecticut Edible Ecosystems, a sustainable landscape design company. Thanks for coming in, Sven. Thank you very much. And also Farah Masani, farmer, forager, homesteader based in Wilton, Connecticut. I'd love for you to come up uh, to where we live, up in Suffield. You can tell me what I'm doing wrong, Farah. You got it. <laughs> Uh, this is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we're going to think about how to extend this thinking to the gardens we may grow for aesthetic purposes. Uh, one way is by growing native plants. We're going to talk with the uh, director of horticulture from the New England Wildflower Society. You can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Just a programming note tomorrow, we're going to have uh, Connecticut's U.S. Senator Chris Murphy uh, for the hour to answer your questions. So we hope you can join us. Now, today we've been focusing on farming, but gardens aren't just for growing vegetables. Joining me now to talk more about this is Uli Lorimer, Director of Horticulture at the New England Wildflower Society. Uli, welcome to our show. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So the emphasis uh, the last uh, uh, part of the hour has been on uh, growing local and thinking about food production. But uh, when we think about uh, sustenance, we can also think about aesthetics and how we plan our gardens, especially the, the flowers that we like to grow. Uh, what are the benefits of planting natives, uh, Uli? And what are some suggested plants that people should be considering? Well, sort of broadly, native plants really form the cornerstone of our Earth's ecosystems, and along with uh, with insects, form the base for the food chain that leads directly to our dinner tables. Um, they define our landscapes and give our landscapes regional character, and they form all of the habitats on which all other living species depend. Um, so by using and conserving native plants in the wild and using them in design spaces, um, we can work together to protect and enhance the resiliency and diversity of our planet. And what are some um, options for people uh, to consider? Because, again, when the weather gets warmer, Uli, uh, people head to the local nursery or maybe one of the, the big box stores, and they want to buy what looks attractive but may not be good for the local ecosystem. Yeah, well, I think that um, you have to kind of think about all of the connections that these plants have. And then the reason I brought up insects, and I'm actually also happy that your uh, previous caller brought up bats, just as a, as a side tangent, that um, these uh, ecosystems um, all co-evolve together. And so um, by selecting plants um, and regionally appropriate plants. And so this is things that you would, that would, you would find in, uh, in the greater New England area. Um, those plants are going to come with already sort of a, a genetically predetermined relationships with insects, with butterflies, the things that like to eat insects, um, bats, for example. Um, and they're, they're also incredibly beautiful. So um, if you're looking for things like uh, shrubs, for example, you can consider things that uh, are fruit-bearing. So um, choke cherry is a really beautiful one, or winterberry. Um, certainly blueberries is a big favorite for everybody in the region, um, and they're fairly easy to grow on your own. Um, you might have to uh, compete with the birds to actually get the fruit. Um, but uh, those are a couple of good uh, um, sort of shrub choices. Um, for trees, um, I really like to um, promote the use of oaks and all the different oak species that we have here. Um, oaks have been proven to support uh, over 400 species of moths and butterflies alone. 
And so um, if you had a choice to plant something that maybe only supported 10 different species or one that supported over 400, I think the choice is pretty obvious. Mm. Uh, Tell us more about the work that the New England uh, Wildflower Society is doing to preserve the biodiversity of plants in our region. Yeah, so um, we are the first conservation organization in the country working with native plants um, and solely focused on New England's native plants. And our work encompasses uh, saving plants in the wild, growing them in gardens and for restorations, and then also um, educating others on the value of their use. So we we really sort of sit on a three-legged stool that is supported by education, uh, horticulture, so the display and propagation of native plants, and conservation. And the conservation encompasses um, a a pretty uh, massive network of volunteers that go out and monitor rare plants in the wild. Um, We have a seed bank um, where we try to preserve uh, genetic diversity uh, in seed form um, from populations that are threatened. uh, um, And then those are then used to support uh, restoration research, taxonomic research, and then sort of the greater scientific community. Mm. And then the horticulture side um, supports the conservation uh, side in that um, we can uh, work together to figure out how to propagate these plants because some of them are difficult to grow. And then we can put them on display here at Garden in the Woods so that um, the public can come see uh, and behold the, the really astounding diversity of plants that we have in the region. When you um, mentioned the seed bank, so how exactly does that work? And, and when we, again, when we think about some of the plants that we tend to want to grow or get seed packets for, some of them may be hybrids so, uh, versus uh, something that's an heirloom. Can you talk about the differences? Sure. So what we're dealing with are primarily uh, species of plants, so things that uh, um, we find out in the wild, although you know, hybridization does happen in some cases uh, without human intervention. Um, and sort of broadly speaking, seeds t- uh, fall into two categories. One, uh, the kind of seed that you can store for relatively long periods of time in cool, dry conditions. And then uh, what are called uh, recalcitrant species are ones that you can't actually store uh, in like a deep freezer. And so oaks, for example, are uh, fall into that category. Um, you can't collect a bag of acorns and put it in the freezer and then expect to grow oaks in five or ten years. Um, so that kind of pr- it, it poses a little bit of a challenge in that some plants um, need to be germinated and grown on a yearly basis, and other ones we can store for much longer periods uh, relatively safely. Mm. Oh, when we think about native plants, some of them can be pretty aggressive, and then there's also uh, certain states are uh, you know trying to prevent uh, invasives from coming in and choking out the natives. And so I'm just yes. curious uh, when again people are thinking about planting their gardens, you know what makes sense uh, using a native that may maybe uh, doesn't uh, take over, um, and what, which, which should be ones that we should avoid, Uli? Well, so um, the answer to that is a, a little bit more complicated and has to do with the process of succession. So um, I think many of your listeners can probably imagine uh, an abandoned agricultural field in New England, and there's sort of a, a very well-studied progression of what happens when you stop intensely farming it, and uh, that particular field then slowly over maybe 50 or 100 years turns back into forest. And usually the first species that come into this kind of situation are those particularly aggressive ones 
um, that if you cited you plant this in maybe a smaller garden context um, are quickly going to get out of control. And so, uh, you know, I think about goldenrods, for example. We have uh, many, many species of goldenrods. Some of them are, you know, the ones that you associate with those beautiful old abandoned fields in the fall, um, but those might not be the best choices for uh, for a smaller home garden um, because their role in the larger process is to colonize and take over. Um, one of the ones that I find is much more well-behaved um, is called uh, the anise-scented goldrod, goldenrod. And the leaves, actually, if you crush it, uh, smell like licorice, which is another nice, nice added bonus. Um, and it behaves very nicely. It stays in place, doesn't run, doesn't go anywhere. Um, so even within a, a group of plants like goldenrod, you have some that are really wonderful garden choices and other ones like Canada goldenrod, for example, um, that you might want to avoid uh, unless you have lots of space for it to take over. Well, the New England Wildflower Society is uh, definitely doing important work. And is it, is it a place where we can come visit from Connecticut? Tell us more. Yes, absolutely. So our uh, garden is going to be opening up officially for the season uh, next Saturday on April 13th. Um, and so we'll have a bunch of sort of welcoming events. Um, and um, I think the strong suit of the garden uh, at this point is really spring wildflowers. So um, certainly I think probably the peak of the show is going to be right around uh, early to mid-May. Um, uh, we have a trillium week. Uh, I know trilliums are also uh, very uh, popular plants and gardens. Um, we do have uh, a number of different species for sale in our retail shop, um, but Garden in the Woods is also the uh, one of the national trillium collection holders, and so we have a really uh, wonderful collection um, showcasing the breadth of diversity and form for trilliums, and we have a whole week uh, at the beginning of May uh, with different events um, sort of centered around uh, appreciating and celebrating um, this very charismatic woodland species. Well, it sounds lovely. I should mention you're in Framingham, Mass. We're going to put details out on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live, for our listeners to learn more. Uli Lormer, again, Director of Horticulture at the New England Wildflower Society. Thanks for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Thanks to Seth Blair on the phones. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. As always, thanks for listening.